We are continuing in this series in the book of Job. And the reason why we are here is because in life's darkest circumstances, we often search for guidance. The way we find ourselves overwhelmed by pain and suffering, we have questions, questions like why, to which we seek an answer. But we also wonder, is this the end? Is there something more? How should I respond? Which direction should I go? And for Christians, uh, when we struggle with life's difficulties, we often turn to Scripture. The reason why we turn to Scripture is, well, first and foremost, it tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In short, it helps us be prepared for those seasons. Furthermore, Scripture has indeed been time-tested. It's, it's stood the test of time. It's come down to us through the centuries. It's been tested within the realms of life's trials and difficulties. But one of the things that I would argue is that when we find ourselves in particularly hard moments, in particularly dark valleys, there is no better place in the Bible to go than to the book of Job. And the reason why is because in the book of Job, we encounter suffering with emotional honesty and realism. There is very little that is not filtered in Job. That when Job, the title character, finds himself in life's difficult circumstances, he cries out in deep, heart-wrenching pain. He's very honest about what he's going through. And yet at the same time, what we also find in the book of Job is incredible wisdom and insight that allows us to face pain and suffering with peace. The question that I'm often asked as a pastor is, where is God in the midst of pain and suffering? Why is he allowing this to happen and how can I endure it? And we believe that it is in the book of Job that we encounter answers to those most difficult of questions. And so this morning, as we continue to take a look at this book together, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for this journey that you've taken us on through Job. That here we see that it's okay to cry out to you. That when life seems overwhelming and difficult, you don't shy away from difficult words, from deep cries of pain and need. But Lord, we also give you thanks that in these pages, we also find hope and peace and joy. And so, Lord, we ask that as we again come to this book, that you would give us open minds to understand and open hearts to receive the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would indeed be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to, uh, again, remind us of the context for this book, what, we're, what we've been talking about. At the very beginning of the book of Job, we are introduced to its title character. We find that Job is a man of incredible wealth and prosperity, but he's also a man of incredible wisdom and integrity. And what we see is that early on, Job's wealth and prosperity are taken away from him. He loses all of his material possessions, and he loses his family. He also loses his health. He is struck down by terrible, debilitating disease. That very, very early on, we see that, that Job is thrown into circumstances that would overwhelm most people. More than that, we learn that he's thrown into these circumstances in full view of God. See, at the very beginning of this story, God, uh, God and Satan end up having this conversation. 
And Satan basically says, Job, God, uh, Job only loves you, God, because of the ways in which you've blessed him. But if you take those things away from him, if you allow him to suffer, as most people suffer, he will curse you to your face. And then Satan goes out and he strikes Job with all of these calamities. It's a story of deep drama. In fact, many biblical scholars looking at the book of Job have, have uh, said that perhaps in, in its earliest days, rather than being read, it was probably performed for the community, performed for the people. And as we look at Job, we also encounter three friends. That when Job is in the midst of his suffering, when he's at his very lowest, three of his friends come and for seven days they simply sit with him. And quite honestly, this is probably the best, thing, uh, the best thing that Job's friends did for him, was to just come and be with him. That in the midst of his suffering, they just sat down by his side in the midst of his weeping and tears. They gave him the gift of their presence in a moment of deep trial. I think that's the best thing that they could have done because the moment they actually open their mouths, that's when things start to kind of go downhill. And I think that often many of us can understand that, right? That when we encounter suffering, when we see someone that we know that we care about in the midst of life's deepest, darkest circumstances, we want to fix it. We want to be able to say or do something that's going to bring it to an end. And Job's friends are no different. They, they try to respond to his suffering by seeing if they can diagnose what the problem is. And they think if we can just diagnose the problem and, and resolve that problem, then everything will be okay. And each one of them kind of speaks into Job's situation from their own frame of reference. The first uh, person that we meet, the first of Job's friends, is Eliphaz, and I call him the theologian. He's a guy who, who, who believes in God, trusts in God, wants to preserve God's name and God's integrity. And so when he comes to Job, he offers this as explanation for what Job is going through. He says, Job, agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, he will restore your blessings. You see, I call Eliphaz the theologian because he says, well, if you just cling to God, everything will be okay. God's not going to let anything bad happen to those who love him. So just, so just hold on to him a little bit more. Have stronger faith, Job. Second person we encounter is his friend Bildad, and I call Bildad the moralist. Bildad looks at Job's situation, and he says this, you know, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. See, I call Bildad the moralist because basically he says, well, what we know is that God is the God of justice, and if you do good, you receive good. And if you do bad, you will receive bad. That God rewards the good, he punishes the wicked. And so, Job, if you are in the midst of this suffering, it must be because you've done something wrong. It must be because you've committed some kind of sin. And if you just clean up your act, and if you just repent of what you've done, everything will go well for you. The third person probably has the harshest response for Job. His name is Zophar. I call him the rationalist, and I have to wonder if Zophar has a sympathetic bone in his body. And here's why. That when he sees Job at his very lowest, he basically says, why are you even bothering crying out to God? Why do you demand an answer? 
Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It's higher than the heaven. What can you do? It's deeper than Sheol. What can you know? But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. He says, God is so beyond your ability to comprehend. Why are you even asking him for an answer? Furthermore, because he's, he's so manifold in his understanding, he probably sees sins that you don't even know about. And I bet you he's not even punishing you as much as you deserve. You see, each one of these guys is trying to find a way what, to, to address the problem. They're saying, if we can just figure out what the problem is here, then, then Job can do something and then it'll all be fixed and he'll be better and we can all move on. It's something that I think many of us do when we encounter suffering. We just want to figure out how we can fix it, how we can bring it to an end. The problem, though, with Job's friends is that their answers are dead wrong. Take Eliphaz and, and uh, Bildad for a second. They basically say, well, you know, God, only, God protects those he loves and he rewards the good and punishes the evil. Now, that's partially true. Ultimately, actually, I would say it's true. But if you look at the very end of the, of the Bible, what it tells us is one day God will come again, and he will bring justice on the earth. He will punish wickedness. He will uphold the righteous, and he will protect those whom he loves. But our world isn't currently that neat or clean, and Job knows this. Job looks around at the, at the world around him and he sees ways in which the good, even though that they've done good things, are often not rewarded. That it's often the wicked who seem to be living the good life. And he cuts right through these bad answers and says, if that's true, why don't we see that in the world around us? It's because Job knows that our world as it currently is, is broken. That the ways God designed it to be don't always work because we as human beings have rebelled against God. We've broken the systems that he put into place that should work. They no longer do according to the standard rules. And, and Job is aware of this. He says, that, that, that can't be the answer. And likewise with his buddy Zophar, who's just like, you know, you can't understand these things. You're... you're, you're uh, probably guilty of something far worse than you're even aware of, and so on and so forth. Job rejects that out of hand because he says, but does not God reveal his will? Hasn't he made his law plain and his ways clear? Job gets frustrated, though, with all three of these men because actually all three of them have diagnosed the problem wrong. They said Job must have done something in order to deserve what he's getting. He must either have a lack of faith or committed some sin, or been responsible for some injustice for him to receive what he's currently receiving. You see, they've forgotten something that we are told right at the very beginning of this book. That when God himself speaks about Job, he says this. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. God himself has said, Job is not going through this because he has done something wrong. This is not a punishment for Job's sin. This is a trial, yes. This is a test of faith, sure. But you can't pin what's happening on him. 
And Job, again, knows this. He, he knows that when he's committed sins, that he's sought repentance. He knows that when he's fallen short, he's offered up sacrifices. He knows all of these things, and, and he listens to these terrible answers from his friends, and with incredible wisdom and, and cutting insight, goes right through the heart of them and says, Why? Why is this happening to me? I know it's not because of what my friends have told me. I know that that's not true. So why am I going through this suffering? Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? Why was I not hidden away in the ground? Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Why, why, why? I think Job asked this question because he's human. This is what we do when we encounter suffering. We want an answer to our deepest questions. Why is this happening? And he cries out to God, and as he hears the accusations on his friend's lips, you can just feel Job sinking down into the depths. But from chapter 3 up to chapter 14, we see Job come very, very close to the brink at several points, wondering if God even loves him anymore. Saying things like, the Lord, the, the Almighty's arrows are in me. It's his poison which is causing this. At certain points saying, uh, wondering, is, has God forgotten about me? Does he no longer love me? What, what is it? But never, not at, not at any point, even when Job is at his lowest, does he curse God or assign wrongdoing. In fact, God says, uh, it says at the very beginning of the book, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrong. And even at the end of the book, when God finally does address Job's friends, he says, you've not spoken the truth about me, but my servant Job has. Job cries out for an answer. Doesn't accuse God, but he does plead. He does beg. He does scream and shout. But it's when we get to Job 14 that something, something happens, something different takes place. The song that Job sings begins to change its tune. And that's the interesting thing that I often find about prayer is that sometimes when I come into prayer, I come in with a specific question. But as I meditate on the character and the ways of God, suddenly the question no longer really seems to matter. The question itself begins to change and be transformed. And suddenly here, in, in Job chapter 14, the bleeding heart song of Job takes on a different tune. He begins to sing a different song. He begins by setting up this contrast. He says, at least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its, its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground and its stump die in the soul, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. So Job says, I, I wish my life were like that. That even when I'm cut down, there's, there's a possibility of, of new life. And, you know, reading through these words, I feel like I, I have intimate knowledge of exactly what Job is talking about. And here's what I mean. When my wife and I uh, first bought our house, 
There was this humongous honey locust tree in our front yard. It was so big you could barely see the house. Its branches were like starting to practically grow into our roof. I mean, its, its roots were definitely going under the foundation. And we were like, for, this, for the protection of our home, we have to get rid of this tree. And so that's what we did. We cut it down. We ground down the stump. We let grass grow over it. And we're just like, ah, done. And then every year since then, this has happened. You know what those are? Those are baby honey locust trees. And they're everywhere. They're all over where the old stump was. You can actually see where the old roots are because they're like growing in a line following these roots. I've gone to the backyard and see lines of these suckers. They're literally called suckers. And I go along with a trowel and now my, now my, now my front yard looks like Job's skin. It's just pockmarked with holes. And they're not because of some animal. I did that trying to fix this situation. Truly indeed, when it smells the scent of water, it bursts forth with life. I can understand why Job goes to that image. But here's the contrast. He says, at least there's hope for a tree. But a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As the water of a lake dries up, or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so he lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more, and people will not awake or be roused from their sleep. Job says, but we're not plants, are we? We're people. And when you cut down a person, that is their end. There's no coming back from that. See, Job understands something about death, that death is an invasion of our world. I was recently talking to a pastor or a friend of mine who is grieving the loss of a friend, and he said, you know, in God's world, the way that God made it, there is no such thing as death by natural causes. See, God made this world so that death would not be the end. He made this world so that we would live eternally that we would live in, in love and in hope and in light, live without freedom and pain and suffering for all time. Death is not natural. It's not the way it's supposed to be, and yet we look around and what do we see? Man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. I get bothered with the bad answers that people give to one another at funerals. Things like, oh, well, God must need another angel in heaven. What? Are you serious? The God who can speak all things into creation decided to take my loved one? And where does it say in the Bible that they become angels? Nowhere. Say, oh, don't worry, you know, the pain, this pain too will pass. I don't think it should. Because this is someone that I loved and there's no one who can fill their spot at my table. There's no one who can take their place in our home. There's no one who can laugh the way they laugh, speak the way they speak, do the things that they do. We give bad answers to death. And again, Job with incredible wisdom looks right through this and he says, death is wrong and yet it reigns everywhere. He rightly cries out, but then his song continues, and this is where the new note, I think, is really sounded. This is where I think Job is at its most beautiful. 
Because Job goes on and he speaks these words. He says, if someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. I said that sometimes when we pray, God changes our prayers. And what Job is essentially saying right here in this verse is he's saying, I actually don't want an answer to the why. The why doesn't matter anymore. I don't need an answer to my question. That's not going to make things any better. What I really want is I want renewal. I don't just want this suffering to end. I want life to be the way it's supposed to be. I don't need answers. I don't need another ending. What I want most is for God to make the world the way it's supposed to be. I want renewal. And as I listen to this song of Job, I can't help but resonate with it. It's as though you play a note on a stringed instrument and all the other strings vibrate in response. I think something in the human heart vibrates to these words of Job. That when we look around at our world and we see families and homes destroyed by storms, that when we see loved ones taken by illness, people who should be healthy now wasting away and gone, when we see wars rip apart nations, we cry out and say, I don't just want an answer for why this happens. I don't just want it to end. I want life to be the way it's supposed to be. I want a world with no more disasters. I want a world where people are not taken by sickness, where cancer doesn't devour the very body that holds it, where wars cease and death is no more. Job says that's what we really need. We need renewal. If man dies, can he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. Why does he wait? How can he wait with such confidence? Well, it's because of what he says next. He says, I know that you will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. He says, the reason I wait is because I know that you, God, Love me, that you made me, that you long for the, ones that, for the one that your hands have made, and that there will come a day when you will count my steps, but not my sins, when you will watch me walk, and your judgment will be no more. Job says, I know you love the one that your hands have made, and because of that, I can cling to you. Because of that, I can wait for the day of my renewal. Because I know that when you make a promise, you keep it. I find this so amazing because these are words that Job is speaking 1,500 years before Jesus ever shows up. And when people ask the question, how do you know that there's renewal? How do you know that there's new life? How do you know that death is not the end? It's because I can point to Jesus. The one who died and rose again. The one who was cut down and yet whose life sprang forth once more. That's part of the reason we celebrate Easter. When we say that we have hope of eternal life, it's not just 
some wish that we cling to without any evidence. But it's rather pointing to what God has already done in time and space. That he came, died, and rose again. And one of the things that I think is just so amazing is what Jesus tells us. He says, you want to know how that, that God loves you? You need only look to me. Paul writes it this way. He says, and how do we know God's love for us? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, see, what Jesus came to do is to basically say, there's nothing, not even your shortcomings and your sins that can keep you from my love. That I came and I died for you. I took the punishment that you deserve on my own shoulders so that you can know that my forgiveness is, for everla- is from everlasting to everlasting. That death and suffering are not the end. And that renewal one day will come. It will break forth like the dawn. It will ascend with shouts of joy. And behold, I will make all things new. Part of the reason we can wait for the Lord in the midst of suffering is because we have that hope. Because we have that peace. Because we know that God is a God of renewal. This past week, I received an email from a member of our congregation, someone who is indeed battling cancer. The email was a particularly heartbreaking one because um, this was the email in which she sent a picture of her head has now been shaved. She's been losing too much hair as a result of the chemotherapy. She sent this picture and she said, you know, this is a sad day because I love my hair. It's like, but I know that that's not what makes me me. What makes me me is that God loves me. That I am a child of God through Jesus Christ. And I know that wherever this road will lead me, Jesus will be there to carry me through it. That is the song of Job. Those are the notes that we sing. And what's amazing to me is how when we bear witness to the goodness of God, even in life's darkest valleys, how that actually does bring forth life. Not just for us, but for those who watch us, who walk alongside us. How it brings forth life because it points to a hope that is real and grounded from everlasting to everlasting. And so I don't know what season of life you are going through. I don't know if you're riding high or if you find yourself in the depths, but know this, that the song of Job is for you, that our God is indeed a God of renewal. Job asks the question, if man dies, can he live again? The answer in Jesus Christ is yes. Yes, I have. And yes, you will. That's what it means to walk with God through the storm. It's in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our redemption and our renewal, that we say, Amen.